This is a Reconstructionist Radio production. Please visit shalcedon.edu to download this book in PDF. The One and the Many by R.J. Rushjini. Copyright 1971-2007, Mark R. Rushjini. Shalcedon Ross House Books. Appendix. Observations on the End of an Age. Section 1. The End of an Age. A cartoon by Von Regan tellingly sums up an aspect of the modern mood. A bearded and unhappy prophet of doom is pictured walking the sidewalk with a picket sign bearing this grim message. We're doomed. The world will not end. The humour of this lies precisely in the fact that the end of the world is no longer a frightening fact, whereas the continuation of the present world order is. This is a mood which characterises men at the end of an era. Faith in the ability of that civilization to maintain the necessities of a bearable life, let alone fulfill its promises, is lost. The presbyter Salvian, writing in the 5th century AD, gives a vivid picture of the collapse of Roman morality and morale. Because of the decay of Rome, its citizens lost all desire to defend it. Higher and higher taxes, ever-increasing welfareism, the steady centralisation of power, the lack of justice and of morality, all these things, more and more, led the people increasingly to lose all desire to defend Rome. The very people who could have defended Rome, the healthy element within the empire, finally felt they had nothing left to defend. As Salvian described it, quote, But what else can these wretched people wish for, they who suffer the incessant and even continuous destruction of public tax levies? To them there is always imminent a heavy and relentless prescription. They desert their homes lest they be tortured in their very homes. They seek exile lest they suffer torture. The enemy is more lenient to them than the tax collectors. This is proved by this very fact that they flee to the enemy in order to avoid the full force of the heavy tax levy. This very tax levying, although hard and inhuman, would nevertheless be less heavy and harsh if all would bear it equally and in common. Taxation is made more shameful and burdensome because all do not bear the burden of all. They extort tribute from the poor man for the taxes of the rich, and the weaker carry the load for the stronger. There is no reason that they cannot bear all the taxation except that the burden imposed on the wretched is greater than their resources. End quote. The Roman world was given to a sick appetite for amusement. As Salvian observed, it is dying but continues to laugh. The Roman theatre and circus catered increasingly to a depraved taste and the impurities of the theatre. Salvian noted, are singular in that they cannot be honestly denounced in public. Salvian was an eyewitness to the fall of Trier, and he saw the crowds continuing to cheer at the games while they raped and dying, while the raped and dying cried out in the streets. But their madness was such that, quote, a few nobles who survived destruction demanded circuses from the emperor as the greatest relief to the destroyed city. End quote. Bach, in citing Salvian's observations, has called attention to their essential accuracy. Quote, Few observers of this period of history can have failed to ponder the fact that millions of Romans were vanquished by scores of thousands of Germans. 
According to Salvian, it was not by the natural strength of their bodies that the barbarians conquered, nor by the weakness of their nature that the Romans were defeated. It was the Romans' moral vices alone that overcame them. From 7108. Narrow as it is, this judgment by one very close to the event remains respectable. As for the men of more exalted position, the well-educated noblemen who fled to the barbarians in order to escape the persecution and injustice that prevailed among the Romans, from 521 and 23, it is clear that they, like their poorer compatriots, had given up hope of obtaining justice and protection from the Roman state and its laws. Their flight confirms the fact that in large areas of the Western Empire, public spirit and public justice had disappeared and that men were obliged to act privately and locally in matters that had formerly been regulated by central government authority. End quote. Rome was thus a society oppressed by welfareism, without faith, overtaxed, immoral, and without sufficient will to defend itself properly. Are these and other marks of the end of an age with us today? But first of all, what is the spirit of the modern age, and why is it failing? The modern age reveals itself in no small measure by its name, modern. The concept of modernity is not common to all history. It is a belief in the relativism of all truth, coupled with an evolutionary concept of man and history. Modernity means that the present moment is its own truth and that true freedom requires that the spirit of an age and of the people of that era be free to fulfil itself without reference to past laws and truths. Octavius Brooks Frothingham, 1822-1895, Unitarian and Transcendentalist, defined this humanistic faith in these terms. Quote, the interior spirit of any age is the spirit of God, and no faith can be living no faith can be living that has the spirit against it. No church can be strong except in that alliance. The life of the time appoints the creed of the time and modifies the establishment of the time. End quote. Thus, for Frothingham, the spirit of an age is the God of that age, and its spirit is beyond judgment by that age, being infallible and inspired because of its modernity. The roots of this faith in Hegel's philosophy are obvious, as well as its connection with modern existentialism. Existential philosophy, according to von Fersen, quote, determines the worth of knowledge not in relation to truth, but according to its biological value contained in the pure data of consciousness when unaffected by emotions, volitions and social prejudices. Both the source and the elements of knowledge are sensations as they exist in our consciousness. There is no difference between the external and internal world as there is no natural phenomenon which could not be examined psychologically. It all has its existence in the states of mind. End quote. Modernity thus exalts the moment because it is thereby hostile to the past and to any higher law. It is also characterised by the religious spirit of transgression, to use Bataille's phrase. This means perpetual revolution as the means to paradise. To illustrate this modernity, let us examine again a statement made on Friday, April 18, 1969, at Stanford. A mass meeting was called by the student body president to discuss the nine-day sit-in, 
and more than 8,000 students and faculty overflowed Frost Amphitheatre. Paul Bernstein, graduate, in, graduate student in political science from New York City, was one of the speakers. Bernstein, bearded, long-haired, naked to the waist, began as follows. Quote, we should not keep talking about anything, but we should look inward to ourselves. But it is not enough merely to look inward. The whole purpose of this movement has been not only to get us to look inward, to realise what our moral concerns are, but to call upon us not to sit with those moral concerns, but to take actions so that we can still respect ourselves as human beings. End quote. <clears throat> this is a clear expression of modernity. Look within not behind or above, for the law. The interior spirit of the age is the law for that age. Truth and moral law mean the spirit of transgression in faithfulness to the moment. The modern era, which can also be called the age of humanism, has been rich in its promises to man. Cradle to grave security, equality, a rich life for all, the abolition of poverty, ignorance, war, disease, and even death itself. Year in and year out, modern man has had the message of nearing utopia dinned into his ears. He has believed it. Man has become impatient with respect to all problems, and a revolutionary rage at delays is increasingly in evidence. This impatience is not helped by the growing collapse of the humanistic age. Material progress there has been, but man finds himself increasingly endangered in engaged in deadlier wars with the world and himself, facing deadly problems of air, earth, food and water pollution, and progressively suicidal in his own impulses. The increasing prominence of psychology is an important sign of the times. When man becomes a problem to himself, psychology comes into its own. A man's inner problems grow, his ability to cope with the outer world and its problems declines. Thus, a psychology-oriented age is an age in decline, unsure of itself and incompetent in the face of responsibilities. It is significant that modern man talks so much about alienation. His position of modernity isolates himself from God and man and leaves him a prisoner of his isolated ego. Because of this alienation created by modernity, modern man reacts violently in his effort to re-establish communications, another key word. Much is said about the communications gap, about the failure of old and young to communicate, and of the inability of any man to find common ground with other men. Again, this loss of communication is a sign of the end of an age. The essential faith of an age, which binds man to man, has then lost its cohesive power, and as a result, communication is lost. A popular reaction to such a crisis is the dropout reaction. The dropout is, in a very real sense, a true believer in his age, but he is bitter against it for its failure to deliver on its promises. As a result, he shows his bitterness by conspicuous acts of offence and non-participation in order to register his protest. At the end of the medieval era, the dropouts became non-students, commuting from university to university as a hostile force. The Goliards developed their own folk songs to register their cynicism with respect to Christian law and order and Christian morality. Similarly, today the dropouts are emphatically involved in registering their protest against the modern establishment.
The dropout is still an intense part of the modern establishment, in spite of his intense protest. First, it is the real stage for him, so that he acts at all times with reference to that establishment. He demonstrates against it. He haunts the university and political world because this is the important world to him. If he creates a colony in the woods, he publicises it. He invites the life photographer in, in order to pose, for, to pose for pictures, and makes sure again that the world of modernity is aware of him. Moreover, his philosophy of dropping out is simply modernity carried to its logical conclusion. As Levi observed of Sartre, quote, The heart of Sartre's strategy for freedom is an attempt to destroy the decisiveness of the past. End quote. This means simply to cut off and drop out with respect to the past, including its institutions. The dropout is thus more modern than the modern establishment. He is very much a part of, and child to, the very thing that he hates. The dropout would resent being called past-oriented and being described as the part of the establishment, but this is the reality concerning him. He is ridden by his past, the dream of modernity, and he is a child of the modern establishment, demanding that the house be reordered by the child and heir. In contrast to the dropouts, the drop-ins are those children of modernity who are eager to cash in on its promises and resent any rocking of the boat. A major spokesman for the drop-in mentality is Playboy. Playboy believes in the utopia of modernity, and Hugh Hefner feels himself to be evidence of its reality. It offers a world of irresponsible sexuality, no ties of family and faith, the prospects of a lush, rich life for all, and a world of endless play and preening. The obvious success of this magazine makes it clear that a large number of people want to be drop-ins, to cash in on the promises of modernity, but it is equally obvious that the magazine appeals to daydreamers who have none of these things. The non-pictorial content of Playboy is alternately conservative or radical, as is needed to defend the dream. Playboy is hostile to orthodox Christianity, to legislation against non-marital sexuality, and to other similar causes which would infringe upon its dream of a sexual and social utopia. This is the radical aspect of Playboy. Its conservative phase is apparent in its hostility to higher taxes, to controls by the civil government, to inflation and to any other restrictive acts against its economic liberty. Both phases or aspects of Playboy's editorial policy are basically in agreement, in that a utopian dream is demanded by means of either emphasis. The drop-in, in effect, tells the modern age to deliver on its promises and then get out of the way. But the order being created by modernity is more than a delivery boy order, it is a drop-in order one which delivers only to claim everything. Not the dream of liberty, but a slavery to the state is the end result of the drop-in's irresponsibility. Meanwhile, the economic, political, religious, ecological and educational crises of the modern world are increasing. Every age has its problems, and many eras have had more difficult problems than the modern age, but the test is the ability of a culture to cope with its problems. The modern age has lost even one of the most elementary abilities of any culture, namely the ability to discipline its children and maintain its authority. Without this elementary ability, a culture is very soon dead. 
the modern age gives every evidence of approaching death. This is a cause not for dismay, but for hope. The death of modernity makes possible the birth of a new culture, and such an event is always, however turbulent, an exciting and challenging venture. The dying culture loses its will to live. A new culture, grounded in a new faith, restores that will to live, even under very adverse circumstances. Section 2. The Religious Foundations of Culture in 1954, Bernard Baruch found the modern mentality increasingly evidencing fears concerning the future. Everywhere we look, we find further evidences of this dread of breakdown. No era lacks its fears and problems, but when the fears of an age outweigh its hopes and confidence, then that culture is in process of disintegration. Every culture is a religion externalised a faith incarnated into life and action. The mainspring of every culture is its basic faith, its religious beliefs which, undergirds, which undergird its hopes, action and perspective. When that faith begins to decay, the culture decays. St Paul cited the meaning of hope. Quote, we were saved with this hope ahead. Now, when an object of hope is seen, there is no further need to hope. Whoever hopes for what he sees already. But if we hope for something that we do not see, we wait for it patiently. From Romans 8, 24-25, Moffat Translation. End quote. <clears throat> but we wait patiently for our hope, as long as we have faith in that hope. When the faith perishes, the hope is gone. This makes clear the nature of the growing internal crisis within the Soviet Union, among the communist elite. Both communist students and leaders are losing hope because they are disillusioned with Marxism. The 1969 defection of one of the most prominent writers of the Soviet Union gave evidence of this. Anatoly Kuznetsov left the Soviet Union, his mother, son and wife, as well as a position of affluence and prominence to seek asylum in England. To indicate the meaning of this step to him, he took a new name, A. Anatole to signify a new life. In his public statement, he declared, quote, You will say it's hard to understand. Why should a writer whose books have sold millions of copies and who is extremely popular and well-off in his own country suddenly decide not to return to that country, which, moreover, he loves? The loss of hope. I simply cannot live there any longer. This feeling is something stronger than me. I just can't go on living there. If I were now to find myself again in the Soviet Union, I should go out of my mind. So long as I was young, I went on hoping for something. Finally, I have simply given up. I came to the point where I could no longer write, no longer sleep, no longer breathe. End quote. <clears throat> the mood of flight is a major one. No sane man wants to remain in a burning building. As a result, many Americans and Europeans also look for a country to run to. Canada, Australia, New Zealand, South Africa, all these and more are cited, but all prove to be a part of the same general conflagration. It is not surprising that the moon flight of 1969 commanded so wide and popular an attention. Many of the remarks made were revealing. 
No life there, but no riots either. This general disillusionment is caused by the failure of the age to sustain man spiritually. The faith of the modern age is humanism, a religious belief in the sufficiency of man as his own lord, his own source of law, his own saviour. Instead of God and his law word as the measure of all things, humanism has made man the measure of reality. Humanism has had a measure of success because it preempted Christian civilization. It captured an existing culture and claimed the fruits thereof as its own. In terms of orthodox Christianity, man is under God's law, and man's only true liberty is under God's law. For humanism, man is not under law, but over or beyond law as his own source of law. Liberty, in humanistic terms, is from law, in particular, in deliverance from God's law. As a result, humanism rapidly erodes a culture as the implications of humanism develop and come to maturity. Humanism calls for perpetual revolution because, with every man his own law and with evolution producing new heights each generation, freedom from the past is a necessity. But this perpetual revolution is the deliberate destruction of the capital of a civilization, and its consequence is the ultimate impoverishment of all. <clears throat> a faith for men to live by is the necessity and need of every race and nation. This faith must give meaning to man's life, to his past, present and future. Man requires a world of total meaning, and humanism, as it comes to flower, gives instead a world of total meaninglessness. Orthodox Christianity, with its faith in the triune God and his sovereign predestinating decree, alone gives that total meaning. The church can depart from that faith only at the risk of its life. If a religion is isolated from its world and is confined to its church or temple, it is irrelevant to that world because it is not its motive force. The religion of a culture is that motive force which governs human action in every realm and embodies itself in the life, institutions, hopes and dreams of a society. Christianity has ceased to be the motive force of society. Not only has Christianity been opposed by humanism, but also from within its ranks. False eschatologies, premillennialism and amillennialism have led to a retreat from the world and a denial of victory therein. This is a surrender of culture to the enemy. However, if the religion of a culture cannot maintain order in the institutions of its societies, then that religion is finished. The established or accepted religious faith of a society must undergird it with the necessary social order to make progress and communication possible. Modern culture, however, is seeing the radical erosion of church, state, school, family and all things else. So that, very obviously, the humanistic faith of modernity is ceasing to provide a workable faith for society. Thus, in this day and age, Christianity the older religion of the West is irrelevant, and humanism, the present faith, is collapsing rapidly. Humanism, in its every form, Marxist, Fabian, Democratic, Republican, Monarchist or otherwise, is in radical decay and unable to further a culture. Christianity, in its biblical declaration, a world religion calling for world dominion in terms of Jesus Christ, is now unwilling to think in terms of dominion. 
Schilder has called attention to those Christians who, to use Freen's summary of Schilder, believe that they have no higher task than to eat the crumbs that fall from the cultural tables of the unregenerate. Crumb pickers are content to let the devil establish a culture, but refuse to believe that God requires it of his people. The stern warning of one prominent clergyman against all attempts at establishing Christian reform leading to a Christian culture is this. Quote, you don't polish brass on a sinking ship. End quote. If indeed the world is a sinking ship, then all brass polishing is futile. But if the world is destined to fulfill all the prophecies of Isaiah and of all scripture and culminate in a glorious peace from Isaiah 2 verse 4 and a joyful reign of Christian law and order, then crumb pickers are opposing Jesus Christ. Culture has been defined very simply as the way of life of a society. When that way of life sees life as meaningless, then society either stagnates or, and declines, or it collapses. To see life as meaningless is to make death your way of life. Oriental societies adopted philosophies of world and life negation. They declared that nothingness and meaninglessness are ultimate. The consequence for them was stagnation and ultimate conquest by the West, first by Islamic forces, then by Christian powers. The luxury of stagnation is now gone. History's more rapid pace brings swifter judgment to those who fail. As a result, when the culture, the way of life of a society, is unable to provide either order or meaning to life, its destiny is death. Facing thus the end of an age, particularly one which deserves to die, the Christian must again reassert Christianity as a total way of life. This means that the Christian and the churches are derelict in their duty if they do not rethink every field of life, thought and action in terms of scripture. Christian schools are an excellent beginning, but no area of thought can be permitted to remain outside of the dominion of Christ. To the extent to which the churches and Christians pursue a crumb-picking operation rather than an exercise of dominion, to that extent the world will flounder in its own decay and ruin before renewal comes. Henry Van Til has given an able statement of Schilder's view of Christ as the key to culture. Quote, Since the Christian is one who partakes of the anointing of Christ, from the Heidelberg Catechism, Lord's Day 12, his concern with culture is inescapable, for by his anointing, Christ was declared the legitimate heir of the first Adam and commissioned as God's officer of the day to the work which our first father failed to perform, namely to glorify God in his handiwork. But Christ was not only empowered, he was also enabled by the Spirit. His anointing was the guarantee of achievement, for he came to reconcile all things to the Father from Colossians 1 verse 20. As such, Christ does not bring something altogether new, but he restores what was from the beginning and actually brings to pass what God designed from the first. Adam, as a living soul, was indeed the father of human society, but Christ is the life-giving spirit who calls men into his fellowship and fashioned them for the fulfillment of the obligation given at creation to the first Adam. The latter must be seen primarily as image-bearer and consequently office-bearer of God, a servant son, 
who as prophet, priest and king received the cultural mandate to cultivate the ground, to replenish the earth and have dominion over it. This was for man the service of God, true religion. This was the original cosmic order in which the idea of vocation, being commissioned and called, was determinative for the, na for the nature of culture. But man rebelled and denied his relationship to the Father, becoming an ally of God's enemy, the devil. As part of the created world of nature, man had both consciousness and conscience, was both letter and reader, interpreter, in God's book. He was called to cultivate the good earth and to bring, bring to expression what was implicit, to fruition what was latent, and thus to be a co-worker with God, the Creator. For although God pronounced his creation good, it was not a finished product. There was to be an evolution and a development abetted by the cultural activity of man. And only thus the Sabbath of God's eternal rest would be ushered in. End quote. Until there is Christian reconstruction, there will continue to be radical decline and decay. This is the end of the appendix and the end of the book, The One and the Many. This audio version of The One and the Many by R.J. Rushduni has been produced by Reconstructionist Radio and narrated by Andrew Monk. Please visit shalcedon.edu, that's C-H-A-L-C-E-D-O-N, Edu to download the PDF of this book. The Reconstructionist Radio Podcast Network brings to you a complete lineup of podcasts where you will hear practical and tactical theology. Our desire is not simply that you consume our shows, but that you also live out your faith in every area of life. We can talk all day long about these things, but if we fail to put them into practice, then we fail as ambassadors of Jesus Christ our King. Subscribe now to your favorite Reconstructionist Radio Podcast Network shows, or you can subscribe to the Reconstructionist Radio Master Feed, where all of the content we produce, including the audiobooks and audio articles, will pop up as soon as they are available. And don't forget to visit ReconstructionistRadio.com to volunteer as a narrator or to partner with this ministry financially. May the Holy Spirit stir you into action for Christ and His kingdom.